All right, what's going on, guys? Welcome to today's episode where I'm sitting down with Dr. Lisa Lewis again. So this is her second appearance and uh, on, the, on the show, and we're going to be talking about mental performance in competition and training. So first off, Lisa, thank you so much for joining. The last time we sat down, we had a really, really interesting conversation, and it actually got a great reception. I, I still get comments and messages on it. So uh, thank you so much for, for jumping on again. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I never know how an audience is going to receive you know, something that's not like mainstream fitness information. So that's great to hear. And I'm pumped to be back. Awesome. So as always, if you guys enjoy the episode, make sure you subscribe, make sure you share it with a friend and help them stop being so weak and out of shape and help them get a little stronger. <laughs> um, <laughs> so why, uh, I think this whole concept of like mental performance, depending on you know, the context of where the individual's coming from can sound either really airy-fairy or it can be very kind of rooted in, in like actual science. So I know a lot of people, you know, like I mentioned, think it's a little bit airy-fairy. So can you kind of clarify the relationship between mental performance and athletic performance and not even just athletic performance, but I guess just performance in general, whether it be in business, athletics or anything else? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And we can start to answer that question by looking at basic anatomy, which is that your brain is the most important organ in your body because it essentially sends signals and operates all the machinery for the rest of your body. So your psychology includes your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviors, which all occur in your mind, in your brain. Um, and your brain is operating, you know, literally physically how you move, your physiology, how activated or relaxed you are. And so it has a major, major, major um, influence on your performance. In fact, once athletes have a high level of skill, years and years of deliberate practice, really what many athletes will say, the thing that sets them apart from other athletes is their ability to be mentally tough, is their ability to deal with um, having stage fright or having, um, fear of performance or returning from an injury um, that they might be thinking about or worried about. So really it's the mental aspects of performance that separate uh, people who have skills, but their mind gets in the way from people who are really able to execute consistently over and over and over again. Yeah. And it's so funny you mentioned that because uh, I'm, I'm not a big sports fan. Like I don't watch hockey or football or anything like that, but I'm a huge combat sport fan. And I think that it's really, really apparent in those, in that, those sports in general, or sorry, those sports specifically, because it is a, you know, an individual sport. And so you really see the individual psychology come through and how they perform. And um, there's so many athletes like uh, in, in MMA is probably going to be what more people are familiar with. And so you look at someone like Tyrone Woodley or um, who, who are some of the other guys uh, like Donald Cowboy Cerrone or whatever. I'm not sure if you're a fight fan, but like these guys are super, super talented, but they just don't have it up here and they just keep mm -hmm. shooting themselves in the feet, you know? And it's like, it's almost like they find a way to lose, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and you see this with guys who are like on this crazy winning streak, they've got all this confidence, all of a sudden they get beaten and now they start to question everything. And then you're just like, man, they're not the same guy. And, and that's really, really tough to get over. So um, that makes a lot of sense. And you kind of alluded to something that I wanted to touch on. This is something I've been getting a lot more interested in personally. And that's kind of the subject of grit, mm. you know? And so I wanted to see if, if you could just kind of talk a little bit about it and then also talk about maybe like some of the genetic influences that determine someone's, you know, I don't know, like kind of baseline, let's say, and then mm. how that can maybe be developed over time. Hmm. That's a really great question. Grit is one of those words that is synonymous or parallel to resilience in the literature. Uh, and this has been a popular topic for the last more than 15 years now, especially as we've seen rates of uh, suicidal thinking increase. So in the area of mental health, we saw completed suicides go up and we saw people thinking more about suicide go up. And one of the major responses to that was to talk about building grit and building resilience, which you absolutely positively can build. It is your capacity to, most people probably think of the, the term bounce back from adversity, but it's more than that. It also includes this concept uh, that 
Nassim Tlaib calls anti-fragility. Anti-fragility means that just like your muscles, just like your body, when you expose yourself to stress, when you expose yourself to something that's hard, um, it actually makes you stronger. So everybody who's listening, if they strength train, if they pick up heavy stuff, they know you do something that feels hard or maybe even feels really uncomfortable or somewhat painful, you recover from it and you actually come back stronger. So the same thing is true for mental toughness or developing grit, that you, you may have some kind of baseline, some way that you experience life. Maybe you're somebody who um, gets stressed, gets irritable, gets anxious, gets down and get depressed. That doesn't mean that you cannot develop coping skills to keep you resilient. The, the word grit is very synonymous. It just means that when times get tough, you are able to persist despite adversities, despite barriers. So you can think about that as almost like a mental endurance, being able to endure times that are stressful. And as a result of utilizing that grit, utilizing that endurance, you actually build capacity to be able to take on more over time. So concepts of like grit, I want people to think about it like anti-fragility or actually even like strength training that you incur enough stress, enough pain to push yourself outside of your limit, but not to injure yourself. And that in recovering from that stressor actually makes you stronger. So you asked a good question about what are the, what's like the genetic predisposition. And I have not read anything about a genetic predisposition for grit or resilience. Most, most times I read about these concepts, uh, they fall in the nurture kind of a column as, as opposed to the nature column. But what we do know is that mental health problems tend to run in families. So we do see some heritability in conditions like depression, anxiety, um, and other, other more extreme mental health problems. So if you're someone who's listening and you know there's people in your family who get anxious, you know they tend towards being nervous, being worriers, maybe some of those folks are diagnosed, maybe they're not you might think to yourself, well, I might have some kind of genetic predisposition, so it would do me well to add on or to work to develop coping strategies so that I can use mental health endurance, mental toughness or grit to persevere through things that stress me out or make me anxious so that I inoculate myself against stress so that my baseline level of anxiety is lower than maybe my dad or my grandmother who tends to get really anxious and stressed out. So not that you can undo the genetic predisposition, but you can add coping strategies and habits that can really protect you, create a, create a protection and inoculate you to the experience of stress. And the same thing goes for depression too. People who have a family history of depression, you don't have to think my genetic background is my destiny. You can see that and think, okay, I'm more at risk to get really down and depressed when life gets super stressful or overwhelming. So I'm going to build up resilience. I'm gonna build mental health endurance and grit so that when times do get tough and do wanna drag me down, I'm not as vulnerable to, you know, to those kinds of injuries because I have ways of thinking, feeling and behaving that protect me from falling down all the way down into that rabbit hole. That's always something that's been really, really interesting to me is the determination of heritability versus um, more the social in influences that kind of start to, I guess, foster some of these these um, psychopathologies or whatever you want to call them. I don't know if I'm using that out of context, but um, mm -hmm. but how how do you go about? kind of differentiating those two because if it in my head anyways and this is just me being you know obviously a little bit less familiar with uh, with some literature and psych because it's kind of mm -hmm. out of my scope mm -hmm. uh, let's say something like anxiety depression whatever like those have a very strong environmental aspect as well so how would you sort That's of right. differentiate between like this these are the components that are heritable and this is you know, I'm, I'm not sure if it's broken down from like a mechanistic standpoint, but how do you differentiate right. between those two? Sorry, I'm not it's sure. It's such an, no, no, it's such a good question. And I think the way you're asking it reflects how we all 
we don't really know how to wrap our arms around that. It's a really big question. And the answer is it's super duper messy. And the symptoms that you experience, the frequency, intensity, and duration of how you experience those states can really vary and be, um, can be due to internal feelings that you have, internal states or external. And one of the ways this is spoken about is exogenous versus endogenous. So for example, you could be somebody who's not dealing with depression, not dealing with anxiety, and then you lose a parent or a loved one, you get laid off from your job and your cat dies. You're going to probably feel depressed, right? So you might have trouble sleeping, you might lose your appetite, you might feel really down and negative, you might be teary, you might not be motivated to train or go see your friends. Those are all symptoms of depression, right? So we put a check mark in all those boxes. Is that endogenous? Is that happening because of nothing in the environment and only because of how this person's brain and neurotransmitters are functioning? No, we can look around and say, look at all these exogenous stressors that occurred for this person. And then parallel to that, we can look at somebody else. And I've, I've met clients like this over the years who I've met them and they've said, I don't know what is wrong with me. I don't know why I feel sad. I feel alone all the time. It's like everything I experience in my life has this like blue lens of sadness over it. But I, have, I don't have anything to be sad about. Everything is okay. And, and these kinds of people typically have trouble with sleeping have trouble with their eating, you know, tend to distance themselves in relationships. And they'll say, there's really nothing, I don't have any reason to feel this way. And they, they tend to present with like some guilt of like, I shouldn't, maybe I'm just being selfish or lazy that I feel bad. But one of the ways that we think about this is an endogenous depression, which may, and this is all conjecture at this point, but some people wonder if that has more to do with inheriting um, brain function and structure that increases risk for depression. So do both of those things check the same symptom boxes? Absolutely. Do both of those things deserve treatment? Absolutely, positively. So the person who has had a bunch of hard stuff in life happen, they could really benefit from counseling or maybe medication or a combination of both because we wanna get them out of that depression. The person who has the endogenous Absolutely, they should be in therapy or thinking about medication or both and other things they can do because their baseline, their mood baseline is probably low and they might have to work really hard to improve their mental health over the course of their whole lifespan. So I guess one of my main points is it doesn't matter if it's coming from the outside in your environment or if it's coming from the inside, your 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 genetic makeup, or if it's a combination of both, any of those things means uh, that you should get help or so that you should seek out support. And those supports are effective regardless of the, the origin of the, of the trigger. That's really interesting. I've never heard it explained like that quite before. <laughs> hmm. um, so I wanted to know what sort of role and relationship self-efficacy had in uh, sports performance and then also like relative to grit? Okay. Well, self-efficacy is basically our belief in our ability to do a specific thing. So self-efficacy is more specific than say self-esteem, for example, or self-confidence. So somebody can have high self-esteem globally, or they can have high self-confidence kind of just about everything about themselves, but self-efficacy means, do I believe I can be efficacious at, you know, squat, deadlift, bench press? Do I believe that I'm efficacious at playing a specific sport? So self-efficacy is specific and it frames our expectations. Our expectations influence our beliefs, how we think, how we think influences our feelings, how we appraise performance. And then those thoughts and those feelings influence how we behave, how we act. It affects our physiology, whether we ramp up and we become more what we call highly aroused, which is feeling on, feeling amped, feeling fired up, or if it brings us down, 
and we feel slower, lower, chiller, you know, quieter on the inside. So self-efficacy really sets us up it, in terms of our expectation. And then it's like, a, it's like a domino effect. Those expectations really influence every aspect of psychology and performance. Yeah, that makes sense. And so would you be able to clarify like some of the nuance regarding like self-belief and performance? Because you talked a little bit about self-efficacy and, and, you know, a lot of the stuff was implied in terms of how it affects grit and the development of grit. Mm. But one thing that I've always experienced, and so I have a very, very high or very strong disassociative tendency or nature. That's mm. just kind of always how I've been. So like, mm-hmm. I don't tend to be too emotionally volatile, let's say. Okay. And that has pros and cons, obviously. And for yeah. performance, I've always found that it's been really helpful because I have this very strong feeling like of anxiety and fear and whatever. But then at the same time, I'm like, ah, it doesn't matter. It only matters if I think about it a lot or if I like obsess mm-hmm. over it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so on the one hand, it's like, I don't think your emotions really matter. But then on the other hand, if they're positive, you can double down and it'd be like, hey, I'm feeling really pot. You know what I mean? So it's like, what what is that relationship between how you feel and performance, you know, and the confidence that people have? Because we've all hit PRs when we've doubted ourselves. And mm-hmm. we all had completely crappy days when we go in feeling amazing or we think we feel amazing. So, yeah. so what is that kind of relationship? That's such an awesome question. Um, I'm trying to hold all of that in my brain so that I can yeah, Sorry, I can repeat because, some pieces if you Okay, need. well, what the, your piece, what you shared is, is really important component to that answer because for some people, their emotions happen to them. They're very powerful and they, they don't feel that they have any space from it. It's very overwhelming. And so in those cases, how you feel and what you think can really take over. For other people, maybe sort of the other end of the spectrum is what you were describing. You're saying, I have a tendency to check out or to, I can get a lot of space. So you were, you were describing to me, observing and describing your own emotion, like, hey, I feel scared or I feel freaked out right now but it's not overwhelming you. It's not taking you over. You, you can actually create some space or some separation there, um, which is a coping strategy. Some people have it, some people don't. And you express like there's pros and cons to that. You probably had that for as long as you can remember. Um, but it's, it's fabulous to have in performance situations because if you are having negative emotions or negative appraisals, like I'm gonna blow this, there's no way I'm gonna be able to do this, you can create some space from that and, and sort of observe with your observing mind, oh, there I go again, playing this negative tape and I hear this, but that's irrelevant. I'm gonna quiet that down or I'm gonna hit the mute on that. So some people are really good at that. Some people, I'll go through an exercise of thought stopping and creating some space uh, and trying to recenter themselves and they've got it. You would probably be someone like that. Other people who tend to have kind of a a higher intensity of emotion that they can't really get space from have a much harder time and got to work on on doing that more. So um, I probably lost the second, well, probably 80% of your question, but that's the first thing I wanted to say is, some people yeah, no. are better at space than others. No, that makes a lot of sense. And so the, the second half would be, how do those thoughts and feelings impact performance? Like what's the relationship? Because in one case, we have someone who it doesn't really matter. And in another case, it, it seems to be the determining factor. Right. So it's how those appraisals and predictions are being interpreted. So appraisals are cognitions that are thoughts that our brain is making. So remember, our, our brain is not really for thinking. Our brain is in charge of budgeting all of our energy in our body. It's in charge of keeping us safe in the environment. So it's constantly crunching the numbers and thinking, do I need more energy or less? Do I need to be ready to fight and flight? Or do I need to relax? You know, the, the brain is always trying to do that. So appraisals are your thoughts. How are you appraising the situation? So if somebody's making appraisals, oh, look at, look at my competition. They look really strong. They look really on target. They're not missing any of their lips. 
that appraisal might bring up, it might tell your body to prepare by bringing up your blood pressure or making your stomach start to flutter or making your palms sweat, you know, increasing your physiology to get you ready. And you might be a person who likes that, who really likes to be ramped up to a nine or a 10 in terms of arousal. I worked with a power lifter once and her ideal level of arousal or activation was a four on a scale of one to 10. She liked to be much more zen out. So appraisals are, are one aspect of how our psychology is impacting us. The other is emotions. Emotions are predictions. So if anybody out there has followed me, who's listening to this, I'm a, a very big fan of Lisa Feldman Barrett, who is a neuroscientist who studies emotions and the brain. And she essentially says, there's no such thing as universal emotions. We don't have emotions by instinct. Emotions is our brain's prediction of what's gonna happen next or what we need to be ready for or how our body is budgeting our energy. So if you have an emotion of fear or you have an emotion of extreme anxiety and tension and worry, your body is basically taking in all the stimulation in the environment and it's saying, oh shit, like get ready. Something really scary is about to happen. Um, and we're not cave people running around in the jungle anymore away from saber-toothed tigers. We are competing in athletic events, doing public speaking, going on on dates, doing other kinds of things that activate our arousal. So your appraisals and your emotions are predictions from your brain. And some people can, can observe that data. What are my thoughts? What are my feelings? They can treat it like it's just information and they can still act. They can still do their best performance. And other people, those thoughts and feelings overwhelm them. In other words, they take that as destiny. Like I'm scared and freaked out. That means I'm going to blow it. Or I think all these people are better than me. And so they must be, you know, they take the data as a fact, as opposed to just a prediction that your brain is making. So again, this has to do with the ability to kind of separate yourself or get some space from your thoughts and your feelings and treat them as data or information as opposed to interpreting them as this is the way it's going to be. This is going to define or determine the outcome of a competition or whatever the situation is. That, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And it was funny, actually, because nearing the I, I had some questions when you were initially talking about predictive power. Um, basically, I was like, okay, well, what do you do when, let's say, you see a shadow and you're like, oh, my God, there's someone coming to attack me. And then you realize it was just the tree blowing or something like that. And you're like, oh, okay, well, clearly I was wrong, but I had the same physiological response as if it were true. But then you kind of delineated at the end. So that, that makes a lot of sense. And so if you do have a bias towards this, let's say hypersensitivity or, or kind of a, right. maybe let's just say like a, a more negative bias, like a, a mm -hmm. doom and gloom, I'm going to fail, things like that. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you can do? And, and a kind of a follow-up question that would be, um, I guess I kind of wanted to get into the role of breathing and, and that mm -hmm. breathing has in terms of regulating your nervous system. Mm -hmm. So the first part of your question is about, you know, we all have a bias. We, we tend to have a way that we can get pulled away from being kind of scientific and objective about what we're experiencing and, and how to perform. And in working with athletes, there do tend to be, I see clients who get anxious and get revved up or too amped. They get, they get kind of more amped than they wanna be for their optimal level of performance. And so they need to kind of come down out of that to get to their sweet spot. So they tend to, worry, fret, um, they tend to get really, really vigilant or, or hyper aroused. And then the other side, people who get deflated, get you know depressed, I don't mean clinically depressed, but they just come down and they get too low because of the way that, you know, this is never gonna work out. There's no way I'm gonna win. I wasted all this time and energy, you know, so their appraisals get really, really low and slow and down. And so the thing to do, first of all, is know what your own ish is, you know, so I'm not saying that people listening have an anxiety disorder or have major depression if they experience that you are a human being, but we all have an ish. We all have a, a way that we lean <laughs> down or up. 
And so get to know what your ish is. Do you get worried-ish? Do you get anxious-ish? Do you get down-ish, depressed-ish, low-ish? So know what those are. Know what your tendencies are. And after you do that, work on catching them in the moment. So as you are training and practicing, you can be aware by, if you notice yourself playing a negative tape, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if I don't weigh in the right number? What if, what if, what if, what if, and getting anxious, say, oh, there I go. I'm playing the crazy tape and I need to settle myself back down. And same thing on the other side. So the first thing you do is be open to it and notice it. And then you want to stop it and reframe yourself. So what are the thoughts, feelings, statements, and practices that help you get into that optimal range of activation of arousal before a performance? So for example, my athlete who said she was a four, that her on a scale of one to 10, one being asleep and 10 being her head about to blast off, she had her best performance out of four. So what we talked about was what is going to help you to get to a four? When you enter competition and you get to like a seven and a half, eight, when you're looking around at the people you're going to be competing against and all the people are in the room and there's all the noises and everything else. So we developed, you know, kind of a mental preparation for her to help her get to four. Other people listening might need, might need the opposite. They might need to ramp themselves up. Um, and again, Daniel, I think I lost, I definitely lost the second half of your question. Can the you remind me? The second one was breathing, but... Uh... Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and how that uh, how that impacts the, the nervous system. Yeah. So I know a lot of people listening might roll their eyes when, when breathing comes up because it is often an exercise that is um, recommended in sports psychology and in mindfulness. The thing about breathing is that when you think about your breathing, you clear your mind of a lot of other stuff. So just the act of paying attention to your breath clears away a lot of crap that might be stressing you out or bringing you down. That's number one. So all mindfulness is, is being fully present in the moment, paying attention to right here and right now. And when you pay attention to breathing, that's what you're doing. So it is this very easy, simple way to try to bring all of your bandwidth, all of your attention into the present moment. When you do that, you cannot help but push to the side negative, anxious, depressed, unhelpful thoughts. So number one, you clear the space for yourself. Number two, when you focus on your breathing, you can influence your physiology. So you can change your heartbeat. You can change the level of activation that you feel. So for example, when you take a long exhalation, that helps to relax your central nervous system help create that relaxation response to bring you out of the fight or flight mode into rest and digest mode. So you're actually shifting or you're encouraging your body to shift where it's operating because as everybody knows, you can't operate in fight or flight mode for a long time. It, it stresses you mentally, it stresses you physically. Nobody wants to try to perform after they've been in that state for an extended period of time. So breathing, clears you out mentally, it does bring you down into a more relaxed space physiologically. Um, and it's very simple and basic. We're all doing it all the time. The final thing I will say about breathing is that when you practice breathing and when you practice getting mindful and getting present with your breath, it's like a muscle. You get better and better and better at it. And there's actually been a, a few pretty cool brain scan studies where we can see people who meditate regularly um, are actually have competency, have the ability to change the way their brain looks on, on a brain scan, on an image actually of, of structure and function. Uh, not that the structure of their brain is changing, the function of their brain is changing, but that they're able to settle themselves down physiologically and psychologically speaking more efficiently than someone, you know, who's a beginner, for example. So for all those reasons, it is fabulous. Even if you just practice for 60 seconds or two minutes or five minutes, it is a good use of your time to practice focusing on your breath and to utilize deep breathing. 
Yeah, a couple months ago, I started doing uh, just breathing exercise about five minutes every morning. And it mm -hmm. definitely makes a huge, huge impact in terms of like calming you down. Because, you know, previously I found anyways, uh, I'd start my day and I'd have so much on my mind. And I'd just be mm -hmm. like always jumping from one thing to another. And it was so hard to stay focused and get like work yeah. done productively. Yeah. And then I started implementing that. And it was, it was a big difference. Like it, for the first while, it was really tough. But then after a while, it was like, oh, okay, this is not too bad. And uh, that's awesome. And yeah. so many people say that. For me, mindfulness and breathing exercises are a really tough sell to athletes because athletes like to be active. They're like, give me something hard to do. Give me something challenging, you know? And so you say breathing and you get like an eye roll or you get people who try it once or twice and say, eh, I'm not good at it. My mind was wandering, but you really got to stick with it and give it a chance. So I'm glad you did. And I'm glad it's helping. Yeah. The funny thing with things like that too, is, is it's like people will say, oh, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And then you're like, okay, do this or do less. And they're like, no, but I'm not willing to do that. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you are that committed then. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny actually, because you mean, even from a coaching perspective, that's something that you really, really see all the time is, you know, what you need to get your athlete to perform at the best. Like I, I have athletes, quite a few anyways, who are like very high anxiety. Mm -hmm. Even one I had competing maybe two weeks ago or something like that. And uh, same thing with her. Like, she's very, very, like, anxious. And the mm. whole time, I just have to be like, hey, watch Disney films. So I have her watching, like, Pocahontas or something stupid like that mm -hmm. on, on her phone. And uh, she's, right now, she's number 11 in the world all time for, for juniors. And she's only been lifting for, like, three years. Mm -hmm. um, and so she's very, very strong athlete. But... Uh, yeah, she just gets super amped up. So I have her like watch YouTube or Netflix or whatever and just relaxing. And then even like right before maybe like three minutes or whatever before she's going to go on, I'm not pumping her up. I'm like, okay, I want you to breathe, slow it mm -hmm. down. What are your three cues that I want you focusing on? This, this, and this. And then I just keep repeating that. And so she's not like overstimulated with everything else. She just has it drilled into her head, you know, brace hips back, this, that, whatever it is that I want her to focus mm -hmm. on. And it's mm -hmm. like, that way she can kind of anchor herself to something. Right. And then she goes out there and she crushes it. Mm -hmm. And the next person like might need you to freaking basically punch them in the face. Cause they like, right. you know, and it's, it's so wild how, how that, how that's different from person to person. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely a lot more like her where I just need to chill and I don't like people amping me up. <laughs> that's such a great example of ways that you and other coaches who are listening are are helping with psychology and mental performance because you know you knew her arousal was too high you know you have to bring her back down so that she can perform and you're utilizing mindfulness and you're utilizing grounding I think you called it anchoring so in the trauma literature we call this grounding techniques you know what do you see what do you hear what do you smell focus on one two three four five things so that's what you're doing, whether you did that intentionally or not. That is a psychological intervention. And then you said there's some other people like you got to rah-rah them <laughs> up and pump them up because they tend to be flattened out. So I think that's a really good example of how coaches are doing psychological work all of the time. Um, and, and I think most people listening probably already have a pretty a good psych toolkit um, that they're using, whether you think about it that way or not. Yeah. I think a lot of it is intuitive and just kind of like, uh, oh man, I can't even think of the word based on tradition, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of funny how those things work. So one thing that I wanted to ask actually is, is the difference in performance that people get from training versus competition. Um, mm. and this is kind of a, another two-part question. Sorry. <laughs> um, one question that I have is athletes who seem to perform really, really well in training, but that they completely mm -hmm. fall apart when, when they actually compete. And then yeah. the other is basically the opposite. And a great example of that is, this is kind of stupid, but I used to train at the Olympic Oval in, in Calgary when I was an Olympic weightlifter. And I remember one day I was just having a crappy day. And then all of a sudden <laughs> the Swedish volleyball team came in and they started, uh, they started training because they had a competition there. So you've got all these like smoking hot girls uh, mm -hmm. from, from Sweden and me and my, me and like one of my good friends, we were both training and all of a sudden my really crappy day turns into like a massive PR 
because I was just like, that's it. Let's do this. And, and it was like easy, you know, and I was like, oh, my God, man, if, if, the, if ever there was like an experiment that like just solidified in my mind how important your mindset is, like that was it for me. <laughs> I love that example. And we, you and I could both imagine somebody having the very opposite reaction of like, oh my God, all these gorgeous women came in and I got so nervous. And then I couldn't, I was like fumbling around and I couldn't do anything right. And I tripped over myself and I must look like an idiot, you know? So we can imagine it from both, from both sides, a simple way to think about it. And there definitely are other, this is multifactorial, but let me just go for the low hanging fruit, which is what we were just talking about, or what we have been talking about today, which is that activation level or arousal level. So, you know, on a scale of one to 10, if one's about to fall asleep and 10's your head's about to blast off, what is the optimal point for you for your best performance? People who do well in practice are probably doing better in practice because the pressure's off as opposed to the pressure being on. So performance anxiety, a lot of people like it. Some people don't. So people who do better at practice may be doing better when they feel like they're not being watched they're not being evaluated, or this is not high stakes when it's low stakes, which to me would indicate they do better. Their optimal performance is at a lower level of arousal. Therefore, when they are in a competition, what they need is ways to relax. So that's going to be breathing, you know, watching Pocahontas, whatever, whatever's going to bring them down. And you could work with, <laughs> you could work with any client to identify like what's their thing that's going to chill them, chill them out. On the other hand, then you have people who, when the pressure's on, when they're being evaluated, when other people are watching, when it's higher stakes, they perform better. That indicates to me that a higher level of activation or a higher level of arousal is where their sweet spot is for optimal performance. So that kind of person might need to get ramped up. They might hear the cheer of the crowd and get jazzed up by that. They might see a scout or a coach or somebody important you know, or somebody gorgeous walk into the room to observe them. And that might increase their level of activation, um, which is a good thing for them. So they'll, they would need that pre-competition. And in practice, they might, it, you know, they might need some way to enhance that, whether that be, you know, videoing themselves or having a friendly competition with somebody they're training with or practicing with, um, what have you. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I really like how you gave somewhat of a template anyways, to, to determine your kind of like position on the arousal curve and, and potentially what you might need to do. I, I think that's definitely important. And it's so funny how few people really, I mean, I think a lot of people maybe do it subconsciously, but developing an actual plan for, for performance and, and what that psychological prep looks like, you know? So for me, mm. like, I know I have my kind of like, my routine and a lot of people have the routines that they go through but I wonder how many people are actively going through this and being like hey this seems like a reasonable strategy because you know here's where I am on the arousal curve and I need to be here right you know, I, I think it's something that's really like you said underrated just like when you talk about breathing or meditation or mindfulness people tend to roll their eyes and kind of scoff at it like you're some you know yogi hippie or whatever but at the same time there, there's obviously some sort of benefit to it and I mean uh even George St. Pierre, he, he was like uh, a really big guy in MMA. He was a very big name. I think he's a Hall of Famer or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he, he had to do a lot of that stuff after he came back from, uh, from a loss. He started working from a sports psychologist because that, that loss really got into his head. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something actually that I'd like to get your perspective on is coming back from a failure, coming back mm -hmm. from a major loss or a major injury or just something where, where you screwed up or you just got, you know, completely stomped. How do you get past that and not necessarily like, uh, yeah, never mind. How do you get past that? <laughs> okay. So coming back from a loss, if somebody's having a hard time recovering from a loss, it means that they have taken that loss, that data, that information from the environment, and they have made an interpretation about what that means. So there are different ways that we can think about what data or what information means. One way is, do we think about it as being global or do we think about it as being specific? Global is, I'm a loser, I suck, I thought I was prepared, 
but obviously I'm not a winner. So taking that loss and making it mean this is the way I am in the world. Specific is like that fight or that, that one competition I had, you know, that happened because that guy was crazy strong. Um, I was a little bit dehydrated. I didn't like the venue we were at. I didn't sleep well the night before. It was specific. There was a specific, specific, specific set of factors that contributed to that outcome happening. It is not indicative of my whole career. So there's a difference there between global and specific. The second way to think of um, to think about this is: is it stable or is it unstable? Which means. If you think about something as being stable, it's like, it's always gonna be this way. Like, this is the way it goes. When I have a tough competition and it's me against somebody who really is a big deal, I'm gonna fail. I'm just not able to rise to the occasion. Versus unstable. That was a one-off thing. That was a one-time thing. Every time I get on the mat or every time I step in the ring or every time I perform, it's a new opportunity. Um, it's gonna be different. And you know, it's anybody's game or anybody's competition on any given. Sunday on any given day, right? So global versus specific, stable versus unstable. How do we think about that stuff? Then there's internal versus external. It's all up to me. Internal locus of causality means I, you know, I am the master of the ship. I am the one who determines what's going to happen in my life. I have total control versus I have no control at all. I'm just, you know, dust in the wind getting blown around by whatever's happening in the world. People who have a more internal locus of causality tend to feel they have more agency, more ability to determine the direction of their life. People who have more external locus of causality says, hey, there's some factors that are outside of my control. And so actually having a balance there is good because that individual athlete can do all the practice and all the preparation they possibly can do but it's outside of their control, what the lighting in the venue is like, what kind of referee there was, how well-prepared or hydrated or amped up their opponent is. So how you perceive those different things in life influences what you make out of that data of having a loss. So if you have a loss and you say, this is always the way it's gonna be, I'm a loser, and this is never gonna change, and there's nothing I can do about it. Guess what? It's going to really get in your head and it's going to mess up the way that you think. Your optimism about the future, your self-efficacy, your ability to see yourself as efficacious in that role. If you view things as being specific to that performance, um, to being unstable at any given Sunday, it's anybody's game, you know, and that there were some things that you did not have control over, it helps you to turn the page and say, okay, what's next? So that you're not taking that data, that information to mean these like permanent unchangeable things about you. No, that's great. I, uh, th that definitely makes a lot of sense. And it's funny actually, because you can kind of tell where someone sits on, on that spectrum, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. There was a competition of powerlifting maybe like a year or two ago and uh, or man I guess it would have been a little more than that because it would have been before COVID but um and essentially the uh, the deadlift platform ended up being warped like really really bad actually so people would uh -huh. walk on and it was actually like tilting right huh. and it was funny because you would see some people being like oh man I was really pissed off because I would have had it or I would have won if I had made this deadlift and the reason I missed was because the deadlift platform was warped and it's funny to hear that because it's like, well, the platform was warped for everyone, mm -hmm. you know? And so on the one hand, it's like, oh shit, I messed up because of this. But then at the same time, they had the same issue that you did. We all had the same circumstances when it comes to like the equipment and stuff like that. So it's funny how people either, you know, how people internalize that, just like you were saying, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to know, like, do you recommend any sort of mental performance strategies, uh, you know, for, for different individuals? Yeah, thanks for asking that. That's, I wanted to go back to that because before the last question, you were commenting on really mental preparation, like getting yourself to whatever your optimal level of activation is before a performance. If you think about the scale of one to 10 is one way to think about it. I'm sure there are other ways. I do think mental preparation is helpful. 
Number one, I think it's just a good mindfulness technique. And number two, when you train and when you perform, you warm up, you get your body ready to be fully present, to act at its best and to endure stress, like to be able to tolerate whatever kind of stress you're going to put it under. And it's good to do that mentally as well, because everybody listening here has about a hundred competing thoughts and feelings and tasks every single day of your life. So you're listening to this podcast. Maybe you're also jotting down a grocery list. Maybe you're driving, maybe you're eating lunch. Maybe you're thinking about your kids. You know, you're probably doing email or on your phone. There are so many things that we're doing at once and we're not very good multitaskers. People think they're good multitaskers, but when we do one thing at a time, that's how we do it the best. So whether you are going to train and practice or you're going to a performance, you can mentally prepare the same way you foam roll or you dynamic stretch or whatever you do to warm up. And for each individual, I, I do recommend going ahead and making a plan. This is what I'll do with a lot of athletes that I'm just starting to get to know is, okay, describe for me what happens as you're transitioning into your training. So that could be driving somewhere, walking somewhere, closing a laptop and standing up, going to the next room. So we kind of talk about what's going on, where is their activation or arousal level and where do they want it to be for that optimal level of performance? And then what's going to bring them up or down and clear space in their mind. So it could be a playlist. It could be a breathing drill. Um, it could be even doing something like moving, like doing jumping jacks or doing some running, not because that's an important part of physical warmup, but for them, they just want their body to actually wake up and get warm and activated to help them cognitively or mentally get to the space where they're ready to train. So we, we create essentially a routine that then I want the individual to get their reps in with. Okay, I want you to listen to your playlist or I want you to do your breathing or I want you to do your movements every single time as you're transitioning in. And then I want you to coach yourself up. In other words, where are my thoughts right now? If I'm thinking about a text message thread with my boyfriend or girlfriend, can I put that to the side for the next hour? If I'm worrying about you know, bills to pay, pets to feed, dinner to make when I get home, can I put that to the side until I'm done training? So that you are intentionally trying to clear up the mental space while you do whatever's gonna bring you up or down or wherever you need to be. And that, that is an exercise that could be 30 minutes or it could be four minutes. You know, It doesn't need to be anything outrageous such that it is intentional and it is specific to, to where you wanna go in terms of if you need to activate yourself or calm yourself down or center yourself before you perform or practice. It's funny because a lot of that stuff is is via repetition, right? Like how, how do you right. perform well in training? And it's funny because a lot of the times, and this obviously is, you know, doesn't really happen that much at, at like a higher level, but especially with beginners and even intermediates, you see them wanting to do more once they get to the competition. They're like, oh, I, I saw this banded distraction thing and my shoulder's been a little, you know, a little off. And so I think this will give me better range of motion. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, have you ever done this before? No. Okay. So don't do it. You know, now's mm -hmm. not the time to add something new or they heard right. that they should be eating these type of carbs or like people who will go out and they'll get like sushi the night before uh, a meet. And it's like, well, how often do you have sushi? Uh, almost never. Okay. So probably not a good idea to, to add something in different. And th that goes the exact same for nutrition, for your training, for your warm up, as well as your, your mental prep. Like mm -hmm. I, I probably would almost, and maybe you disagree, I'd, you know, I could hear your, your perspective on this as well, but I would almost caution people against adopting a, a mental prep that they haven't done right before a meet. I'd be like, you know what, just do what you normally do right now. Probably isn't the time to try anything new, you know, because that might kind of get you a little too obsessive or something like that. I don't know. Yes. I'm nodding in agreement because yeah. one of the ways I, I always talk about psychology is that you want to be able to observe and you want to be able to use what happens as information. This is essentially the scientist practitioner model that everybody out there listening, you are in your own lifelong research study that is an N of one, which means there's one subject in your study and it's you. And when you think about this mental preparation, you know, you want to create a controlled variable. So every single time it's going to look the same, it's going to feel the same. 
And if you are going to change a variable, add something in like sushi or no carbs or whatever, you're not going to do it pre-performance. You're going to do it in low stakes when all the pressure's off so that you can observe and see what happens. And then if it results in something positive, you get a lot of repetitions of that in. And then when it feels like a habit, you bring it into competition, right? So this is a scientific way to you know, add a variable or change a variable and then observe what happens, collect the data, see if you wanna leave it in or, or take it out. No, 100%. And uh, so do you have any recommendations on either books or different materials that people can, uh, can kind of continue looking into this? Hmm. We've covered a lot of good ground. Let me think. Well, I did mention Lisa Feldman Barrett, so I would be remiss if I did not recommend her or some of her information. Um, she did a TED talk. It's over a decade now, so it's a little bit dated, but you could, people who don't like to read could watch that. It's about 20 minutes long. Her main book is called How Emotions Are Made, and it's very dense. It's very long, and it's not an easy read. But last year, or this year actually came out, she wrote a book called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And it's fabulous. And it's nice and easy. It's actually written in like seven essays. So I think anybody listening could probably gain some good stuff out of, um, out of reading that. In terms of mindfulness, you know, I would point everybody to John Kabat-Zinn. He is, he is really one of the fathers of mindfulness and meditation practices, not, and when I say that, I don't mean like transcendental meditation. I mean more of what you're talking about. Everyday practical routines of being mindful, of using relaxation, of bringing yourself into the present moment, whether that is for the purpose of relaxation or for performance. John Kabat-Zinn has a number of books and he has tons of free stuff on the internet. So YouTube videos, um, little articles, and since, since he has been around, there are, there are a handful of other names of people who are great, but I think if you start with him, if you're interested in this topic of, of mindfulness, um, that will lead you down the right path of, of finding you know, other sources uh, that would be legitimate and worthwhile. Um, any other topic in particular, Daniel, that I might be able to think of a book or a resource for people? I'm trying to think of the things we covered today. Uh, maybe on like flow state. Well, you could read the original from Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, which is flow. Um, I love him. And uh, his book is old now. I think it was, I think it's like 2000 maybe. So yes, it's been around for a long time, but, but we talk about flow or being in the zone all the time. And I really think he, he is the original and he is the best. Um, and that's not, that's not a hard book either. People could, and people could actually just read maybe the first four chapters of that book and have a really good sense of what flow is and how to get themselves there. That's awesome. So where can people find you? Please find me on Instagram at at Dr. Lewis consulting. I do try to post at least three times a week and integrate um, psychology and strength training together. You can also find me on my website, which is drlewisconsulting.com. And I try to keep up to date on their podcasts that I'm on, articles that I've written, events that I'm going to be speaking at or be presenting at, um, and all things just, you know, related to the work I do. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. It was a really, really interesting conversation. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much, Daniel.